Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Today, Dressed listeners, we are so happy to bring you part one of a very special two-part episode on the fashion history of the kimono. And this episode has been on our um, list of ideas and our working (laughs) list, which is ever-growing and ever-increasing. Basically, it's been on the list since day one. I know. If dress listeners could see the list of episodes we have, I mean, (laughs) the show will go on forever if you let us. (laughs) And I have to say, I am actually glad that we waited to do this episode because the Victoria and Albert Museum, they just put out an exhibition earlier this year, Kimono Kyoto Catwalk, and it provides just the sort of deep dive into the topic that we love to do on Dressed, hence the two-part episode. Featuring 315 garments, Kimono Kyoto to Catwalk represents the UK's first major exhibition on kimono. Unfortunately, the pandemic has meant that the Victorian Albert, like so many other institutions around the world, is closed at the moment, and also this incredible exhibition with it, which is why we are all the more thrilled to welcome today's guest to the show. Right, because if we cannot currently go see the exhibition, why not bring the exhibition or at least its curator's insights and expertise to us, right? So today we are very excited to have Anna Jackson joining us on the show. Anna is the head of the Asian department at the V&A and specializes not only in Japanese dress and fashion, but the cultural exchanges that have happened for centuries between Japan and Europe. Anna, welcome to Dressed. Anna, welcome to Dressed. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So Kimono Kyoto to Catwalk, the exhibition and accompanying catalog are tremendous feats of scholarly inquiry and research into the kimono. Its history, the artistry and techniques that comprise its construction, and then of course its influence around the world. So I'm really curious to know what inspired this exhibition and why is it so important? Well, thank you very much. Um, well, I've been looking after the collection of um, Japanese textiles and dress at the BNA for many years. So it's kind of an idea that's sort of been percolating in my head for quite a while. But I think, as you probably know, the BNA is really famous for its fashion exhibitions, but they've inevitably focused on Western fashion and famous designers. And really, we wanted to show that fashion flourished elsewhere in the world. And I think there's a tendency to see kimono and people recognize they're very beautiful, but they tend to see them as sort of timeless, unchanging costume. So we really wanted to show that they were fashionable. It's all about fashion in Japan and always has been. And really to show as well that they, you may think of a kimono as being quintessentially Japanese, but it has had an enormous impact on fashions around the world. I think we're doing it now. There's been in the last two years, last decade or so, quite a fashion, a sort of kimono renaissance in Japan. And I noticed that more and more when I visit the country myself. So it seemed like a really opportune moment to investigate the kimono and present it. And also we were conscious that it's Olympic year, though the Olympics have now been put back, it was Olympic year. So it seemed like a good moment when people might be thinking about Japan and be interested to know more about Japanese culture. 
Yeah, and in the exhibition, you have kimono presented in the traditional flat two-dimensional display, but you also have kimono from the photographs I've seen displayed on mannequins, so in the round. And this really is not something that you typically see, so I'm curious what inspired this decision, because I think it's really, really important. Yeah, it's it's quite unusual. I think I'm not sure I've seen it done before with historic garments. The thing about kimono is it's a very, if you think about the kimono, the most obvious thing about it is it's this completely straight cut garment that's wrapped simply around the body. And it's so very different from how you think about fashion in in the West, where you've got clothes that sort of accentuate or suppress different aspects of your body. And in Japan, there's no relationship between the body and the dress. It's all about what's happening on the surface of the cloth. You know, what's the pattern? You know, how is it decorated and so on? So the best way to see kimono really is on those kind of tea bar kind of stands. It's also the case that they, because they wrap around with an obby, the sash that goes around the middle and with undergarments. And whereas the kimono did survive, the obby and the undergarments don't usually. So we don't necessarily have those historic things to, to accurately clothe a body. And also, of course, kimono are inherently quite fragile, some of them. So you don't want to damage them by sort of tying them across the waist. So for all those reasons, you tend to see them on these sort of T-bar and flat. But the disadvantage of that is that you see them as works of art and you don't see them as clothes. So really what we wanted to do was to make people understand that they're clothes and how different they look on the body. And we can do that a little bit through the paintings and the prints that we show in the exhibition, but we really wanted to try to put them on the mannequin. Now, obviously that's easier when you get to the present day when the garments are more robust, Mm -hmm. but it's more difficult with historic garments. But Kimono, as I mentioned, were more in layers. So in the winter months, um, sort of elite members of society would wear an outer kimono known as an uchikake, which kind of hangs. It doesn't, it doesn't have the obi. It hangs a bit like an open coat with a big thick hem. So we decided we would do it with these garments because then you don't have to worry about the tying. Um, we still wanted to get it right historically. We still have to do it very carefully. So it's quite a challenge that I set um, the conservators and the mounters in um, your work at the BNA with me um, to do this very well. And they made wonderful sort of um, underpinnings and undergarments um, f- to support these and sort of cushions at the back that look like the obby underneath and so on. And we had wigs made just to make try and make it look very realistic. And and, and right at the very end, we had a colleague come over from Japan, uh, Koka Goshimura, who works at Bunker Gakuen, one of the big fashion colleges and museums in Japan in Japan, in Tokyo, and she helps us just to make sure we were getting everything historically accurate, because obviously we wanted to get it right. So it was quite an interesting experience and quite fun. It was, it was quite challenging, and I think it was quite a surprise to Japanese who'd, who'd seen it, in, including um, Ms. Yoshimura. When I asked her, how would this be done in Japan? She said, this is never done in Japan. Ever. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> she thought it was, I mean, she was, I said, I looked at her, I said, oh, do you think we've done it wrong? She said, no, no, not at all. I think it's really exciting, but it's very, very unusual. It's, it is quite a challenge. But it does make you look at the garments quite differently. And what was quite amusing, I hope you won't mind me saying, but one of our big lenders, David Halili, um, he came to with the first, the first instance in the show where you see this with a samurai woman's uh, garment. He said, gosh, that's a really beautiful kimono. Who owns that? And I went, you do. <laughs> and it was because he said, "Oh my goodness!" Because it was so different to see it in that way. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." I said, "No, no, it just proves how different you look at it and how how different because you're sort of focusing so much on the pattern you're focusing on the shape." So it was a really, really interesting and quite challenging uh, thing to get right and and to make sure again that we weren't damaging the garments. But it was, I think, it really brought the garments to life for people. 
Absolutely. And I can only imagine as a museum goer going there to see that it really helps you, uh, you kind of imagine the woman or the man that would have worn that garment. And obviously, as we get closer to the present day, in the last section of the show, I think virtually every kimono is on a mannequin. And actually, when we do the 1920s garments, we put a few of those on the mannequins. And that was quite fun as well, because we went um, shopping uh, in Tokyo uh, to vintage stores with um, Mr. Yoshimura, who I mentioned, to make sure we were, again, getting the accessories that were the right right for the kimono. And um, to, not just to get the right period, but just to get the right kind of style. So I kept picking things, and she said, no, no, that's far too tasteful, Anna. You have to remember <laughs> that they love the clashing colours. So she picked out, for ones we've got with amazing sort of striped and sort of arrows on it, sort of strong green and black colours. She picked one that was sort of pink with kind of like carnation-like flowers on it. And I thought, oh, that's just that's a bit, you know, not, not weird. But actually, of course, when it was all, when she came and she dressed it all, it looked brilliant. It was absolutely perfect for the period. That was from the 1920s. <laughs> So as you've kind of mentioned, the exhibition covers hundreds of years of Japanese fashion, the progression of fashion. Um, I'm hoping we can take us back and kind of to the basics a little bit. Can you basically just tell us what the kimono is and a bit about its early development in Japanese societies? Because for starters, the moniker kimono, I believe, was not applied universally to this type of garment until the 19th century. Yeah, the kimono, kimono just simply means the thing to wear. And although um, you could see instances of the word being used much earlier in Japanese history, it isn't really till the 19th century that the word gets sort of used as this sort of umbrella term. And the correct term really for, for garments, particularly sort of pre that period, is, is normally kosode, which means small sleeve, which is referring to the opening at the wrist. And then you get other kinds of words like furisode, which means long sleeves. So there's quite a lot of influence on sleeves. And really, it was just when Japan encountered the West in the 19th century, when all those sort of subtleties of Japanese dress were rather thrown out of the window, they started to use kimono as this sort of umbrella term. But we use it throughout the show because obviously it's a word people are familiar with. And it has quite a long history in the um, sort of also it's a Heian period, so in the sort of 10th and 11th century, the kimono-like form seems to have been used as an undergarment for much more elaborate um, and wide-sleeved garments worn at court. But gradually there was a sort of change in society with the falling out of power of the imperial household, the rise of the samurai, a simplification of dress. And this kind of garment seemed to rise to the surface almost. And at the same time, you've got the sort of clothing of commoners, which was much more simple and quite sort of kimono-like in shape. So gradually these things sort of came together. And really by the 16th century, the garment that we would think of today as, as a kimono had become the principal garment for everyone to wear, um, regardless of their position in society. And, and it was worn by both sexes. We tend to think of it as a feminine garment, but men wore kimono as well, and the children. And can you talk a little bit about the construction of the kimono? Because it's so different than European and American tailoring techniques. I mean, it's really cut from one width of cloth. That's right. One bolt of cloth cut very simply. So you just get a one length that goes so from hem to hem on each side. There's never, never a seam across the shoulder in a kimono. And then you get another section of cloth that's just the sleeves. And then a sort of thinner section that's the overlap as it's wrapped around the body, and then another bit for the collar. So it is very, very simple. It's not about tailoring as we think of it in, in the West. So it, it, it is, as I say, the very straight uh, seams. And in the exhibition, in the, in the BNA, in fact, we have a, rather unusually, we have a, a, a sort of deconstructed kimono, something that we acquired 
in the early 20th century. And I think it must have been shown sort of in, in exhibitions to explain this to people. It's just the flat bits of cloth. It's all They have all the decoration. But you can see the different sections, uh, which is quite good. And then we had our, our AV designers, um, Luke Halls, were able to make a, a, a little video, um, which I hope might be available online at some point, where you can actually see how all these pieces come together to make the garment. So it was really the... It was the surface, really, the surface that was important. So how, what kind of materials you used, uh, what kind of decorative techniques, what kind of colours and so on, um, and motifs that, that were really important. That's what told people sort of what, what, who you were and, and what your style was. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little bit more in a minute here. But first, um, I want to talk about the emergence of the Japanese fashion system. This is one of the cornerstones of your exhibition. And and one of the most important things of your exhibition, I have to say, that you're actively countering, as you said earlier, those Eurocentric narratives that really say that fashion and the fashion system only evolved in Europe and America. And you've proven through this exhibit that that simply was not true. So you actually say that this emerges in the Edo period which had, you know, political stability and economic growth. So how did that foster this uh, Japanese fashion system? Well, after sort of, well, centuries really of sort of civil unrest and civil war, Japan was unified at the beginning of the 17th century um, by uh, the great samurai leader, Takaga Yasu, and he chose for his new capital what was essentially quite a small, uh, it wasn't even a town at that stage, it was Edo, uh, which is what we call Tokyo today, and that's where the name of the period comes from. And this was just, you know, there was really unprecedented political stability in the hundred, few hundred years that followed. And with that came prosperity and the growing demand for goods and the sort of growing sort of wealth of quite a lot of, uh, of Japanese inhabitants, not everybody, of course, but there was a sort of, and certainly a sort of growth in urbanization. It was, you know, Edo, present-day Tokyo, went from being this sort of small fishing village to being the biggest city in the world. It had over a million inhabitants by the beginning of the 18th century, so it was about four times the size of London at that stage. So what you see kind of emerging particularly, though the samurai who are no longer fighting, so they were no longer um, having to prove themselves on the battlefield, for them it was all about um, sumptuous appearances, so they were very important consumers of luxury kimono. But it was really the merchant classes. Japan had quite a strict social hierarchy at the time with samurai, uh, the samurai class. We tend to think of samurai as the sort of warriors in the armor, but they were a sort of ruling military aristocracy, if you like. So the samurai class at the top, then the, the farmers, and then the artisans, and then the merchants at the bottom. And they were seen as a bit of a necessary evil. They just benefited from the labors of others. And they were the ones who got rich. So they were the ones who really sort of became really important consumers of the kimono. They, they were the ones who demanded the newest styles. And what, when we look at sort of fashion in Japan, or, you know, what is it that makes something fashion, a fashion system, as you mentioned, rather than just sort of like changing styles? And people often date it to sort of the 1660s, and this is when pattern books were first produced. So taking advantage of the sort of newly developed woodblock printing styles, these sort of books that would have about 100 pages of patterns or uh, for kimono, so the outline, usually the outline of a back of a kimono showing the design with some hints on what colors or techniques you could use, sometimes interspersed with images of women wearing fashionable kimono. And these were produced in their thousands. And you could go to a merchant, to a kimono store to to get one of these, or you could just go to a normal bookshop. Sometimes you, you bought them or you could sort of just borrow them. And 
people read them in, in the way that we might read modern magazines just to get inspiration about what to wear. And they became a way of communicating with the merchants as well about what kind of styles you want. So this is a way that sort of information about fashion circulated. And certainly Woodblock prints themselves were very, very important, particularly as, as you got into the, into the 18th and 19th century when the colour woodblock printing developed. And you get this amazing, um, beautiful prints of, of, of gorgeous-looking women or famous courtesans or kabuki actors in these very colourful uh, prints. And we think of those prints now, if you wanted to buy some of these famous prints now, they would cost you thousands and thousands of, of pounds or dollars. But they, at the time, they were just completely ephemeral. They were really cheap. They apparently cost uh, one sheet print would cost you about the same as a couple of helpings of noodles, and noodles were the cheapest form of uh, food in Japan at the time. So these, again, were, it was how fashion circulated. So in the same way that we, you know, we read magazines today or look online or whatever the latest fashion. So this is how you see a sort of fashion a system kind of developing. And certainly you get the um, importance of people who led fashion, like famous courtesans, like kabuki actors. Everyone would want to dress like their favorite actor, just again, something similar to today. Um, and they'd go out and buy the, you know, if an actor was on stage wearing um, the latest sort of colors or a new shade or a new pattern, all his fans would want to go out and buy something, get something that was similar. So, it's, so it seems it's quite a lot of fed by that kind of celebrity culture, there were kimono retailers and makers and uh, the print, people who produced the prints and the books, they kind of exploiting this latest demand. So it is very much like a fashion system as we, we think of it today. And certainly in the way that the shops were established, the most famous shop is probably Echigoya, which is what um, evolved into the present-day Mitsukoshi department store, founded in 1673 by Mitsui Takatoshi, who really understood the power of the brand. So apparently if you went to his shop when it was raining, he'd give you an umbrella with his, with his crest, with his logo on it. And there was a famous incident in, in Edo where all three of the most popular theatres, the actors, all stopped to to talk about how wonderful his fashions were. So a real sort of marketing campaign, as we would think of it now. So all these things that, that, that seem to us very modern were, in fact, uh, around in Edo period Japan. Yeah, and you've talked a little bit about it. You've said um, about this industry that really rose up to meet the demands of this increasingly fashion-conscious population. And really, that print culture served to kind of democratize fashion too, right, across the, kind of the economic spectrum. So many people could afford, as you said, it was um, as inexpensive as a couple bowls of ramen. So people who might not have been able to participate in fashion prior could now, because of this wealth of availability. I mean, it wasn't necessary that everyone was wealthy. And I think it's important to, rem to remember that most people would wear something quite simple on a day-to-day -day level. They'd wear a cotton kimono or something simply striped. You just wear the silk kimono for um, special events. And if you, obviously, if you weren't very wealthy, you wouldn't be able to afford a, a, a silk kimono necessarily. And it's obviously, the, it's like the whole couture of the day and the things that survive in museums, Absolutely. such as the V&A. <laughs> but so, so you'd, re, you, you'd look at your, your famous courtesan or your actor and you, you wouldn't, it's a bit like today, you know, we can't go out and buy or afford to go out and buy designer clothes. But, you know, hopefully we get something vaguely similar uh, on the high street. So it was a bit, it was, it was kind of similar to that, you know. It was just something to sort of beam about, to emulate. If you were lucky enough, you'd be able to buy something occasionally to copy your favourite actor or something.
those woodblock print publications that you're talking about, they're, they're works of art in their own right. They're so incredibly beautiful when you look at them. You know, we're talking like hand-painted and stenciled. They're incredibly beautiful. And then what I loved about the catalog is that you have, in some instances, you're able to match an extant kimono in your collection with a woodblock print that someone took inspiration from. And I just find that incredibly, uh, uh, it's wonderful. Yes, that took a while sometimes to yeah. uh, <laughs> do that. <laughs> but yeah, it was very, I mean, it's, it's a very nice way of doing it. And in the, in the exhibition as well, we um, use the prints really as a sort of inspiration. So we've got some, a couple of the prints showing kimono, a woman getting dressed with her makeup in front of her and a, a mirror and um, makeup brushes and combs and with a rack of kimono behind her and everything. And in the show, we've, 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 rather than putting something on the normal kimono stand, we've, we've got a kimono rack and we've, we've sort of draped kimono off it, over it. And we've got in our collection, it's not in the catalogue, I'm afraid, um, beautiful lacquer mirror. And we've got some of these combs and brushes that we've, we've laid them out. So we've used the prints really as a sort of inspiration for the displays. And so you mentioned haute couture earlier, and certainly these kimonos span the, the you know, the spectrum of, of inexpensive to incredibly, like, incredibly expensive. Um, there's a really wonderful um, part in the exhibition catalog where you kind of go through the process of what it would have been like for, say, a wealthy woman, the wife of a wealthy merchant, to procure her wardrobe. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what that process might have been like, and then also the social expectations she would have had to consider when doing so. So, yeah, so if you were, um, you would tend to order kimono twice a year, and it's a bit like um, the seasons now, fashion season. So in the summer, you would order winter kimono, and in the winter, you would order your summer wardrobe. And you would go to the the merchants. So the merchants were kind of like at the apex of of, of the sort of network of artisans who would make uh, kimono. So they would. Um, so you'd, you'd either go to the merchant yourself, or perhaps if you were very rich, of course, you'd send one of your servants to do this. Or indeed, someone from the merchant house might come to you. Um, so the kimono shop might come to you to talk about it. And using the woodblock prints, using the pattern books, you would um, talk through what kind of things you might like. And then the, with your order, the kimono uh, merchant would sort of start the process. It could take a few months to make a very sumptuous garment or perhaps about a month or a, week, a few weeks to make something that was very, very much more simple. So... First of all, once the cloth had been woven, so you'd choose a particular kind of cloth, the cloth had been woven, the kimono would be sort of temporarily constructed, the design would be drawn on it with a sort of soluble kind of ink, and then the kimono would be taken apart again, and it would go to different workshops for different parts of the decoration. So the dyeing would be done uh, in one workshop, say, and the embroidery in another. Sometimes it's just created with, with dyeing or just with embroidery, but if there was a combination, these things would move from workshop to workshop, each time going back to the merchant who would check that the work was well done. And at the end, all the parts would be sent to the kimono maker who would sew everything together and add the linings and any kind of padding. In the winter, you would have a sort of slight silk padding in the garment to make them warmer and so on. And then again, at each point, the work would be checked off until it was finally ready for delivery. And the merchant would keep a very careful check on all the costs that were involved in making the garment, and then they would add a 30% for their own profit at the end, um, and that would be the final bill that would go to you uh, So, as the, as the consumer. And, and I think, you know, very wealthy people might order sort of 30 kimono at a time, 
um, if they were very wealthy. And, you, you know, I suppose the kimono would, would re- reflect your wealth, you know, depending on how much money you had to spend on these garments, you know, whether you could choose to find the silk or the most beautifully woven examples or whether you would have to, whether you have embroidery, whether you would have something cheaper like stenciling, for example. Um, and also your age. So, Younger women, for example, would wear what are known as furusodis, swinging sleeves, these very long sleeves. You have them cut short when you're younger. And younger women, like now, I suppose, you know, you'd have the, more, the most colourful and the most bold designs tended to be for a younger generation. Older women would wear something a little bit more subtle, a bit uh, quieter, if you like, in design. And certainly men as well would tend to wear much more sort of understated colours, less patterning and so on. So there were those kind of considerations. And actually your own sophistication and taste you know sometimes you'd have kimono designs that would refer to famous poems or, or other kind of references to literature and things and you might want to show off how erudite you were by having that kind of design on your kimono so, the, so it was a it would it would reflect your wealth it would reflect perhaps your gender it would reflect your age and it would reflect your own sort of taste and, and cultural sensibilities and then also your familial lineage, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the moon? Because that's not something we're really familiar with. So it's a bit like a crest. So each, so it's a circular device. I suppose we think of it most, we associate it most with samurai. So each samurai family would have a, a mon, a crest. And this is the kind of thing that originally would have been used in battle. So somebody would have the, the sort of banner with the crest on, so you'd know exactly where your friends were as opposed to your enemies in battle. A bit like having a battle stand now. So that's, that's sort of the origin of these things. But you would also put them on your garments. The samurai men particularly would have the crest of the family. So if you think about each sort of regional lord, essentially they're like a big a big clan. They all essentially belong to the same sort of fa- extended family. They they owe their allegiance to their lord. So if you were you would you would have your lord's mom um, lord's crest on your garments, and women would as well as men. But really by by the Edda period, the period where we sort of focused on at the beginning of the exhibition, you know, more and more people were, were using these. I mean, certainly famous courtesans would have them. Shops like the Echigoya had its own crest, had its own mon. And it was a way of sort of showing who you were and, and what family you had. And you'd, it's a bit like you'd recognize someone's logo now, you know, for what you bought, but you'd also have them on your garments. So um, for a very formal garment, worn perhaps for a special occasion or something like a New Year's celebration, you might have five mons, so three along the back, sort of along the shoulder line, and two at the front, or less formal would have three, or sort of semi-formal would just have one. So you mentioned earlier that kimono is, um, or can be a reflection of your social class, and we witness in various countries across Europe, kind of around the same time, the 16th and 17th century, when we also see a fashion system evolving in Europe. I made a lot of parallels here. Um, when you see the introduction of a fashion system into Japan, you see strict sumptuary laws as a result of that because they're really trying to dictate just what a person of a certain class could and could not wear because more and more people could afford to wear clothing that maybe could hide their station or um, reveal them to be above a station that they were not. So can you talk a little bit about these sumptuary laws and in what ways they were subverted, if at all? Yeah. Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the shogun particularly, uh, the, the sort of military ruler of Japan and the, that, that sort of samurai class, it was all about preserving the status quo, which in a sense preserved their system of power. So the idea was, you know, you had this very, very strict hierarchy and you would only be able to 
wear certain clothes or indeed use, use other kinds of implements, you know, have certain kinds of lacquer or certain kinds of ceramics and so on, if you are a certain class. And you certainly, it would seem to be dangerous for people, dangerous for the system of government, if people's dress was getting out of step with their social status. So every now and again, the shogun and the shogunate would issue sumptuary laws or particular edicts and that would outlaw particular kinds of often you know it meant that if you were merchant from the merchant classes you weren't supposed to wear silk or perhaps you weren't supposed to use the most expensive dyes red dye particularly was very popular and very expensive you weren't allowed to use embroidery for example and so they didn't always have the same they weren't always the same laws they didn't always say the same thing but they would always outlaw certain kinds of fat certainly of fabrics and techniques that were being used so people would often sort of observe the rules for a certain amount of time and then they would get they would just ignore get very lax so you get this kind of move between sort of opulence and restraint in Japanese dress uh, across the Edo period and but certainly often people just completely ignored the rules. They were sometimes known as the three-day laws, because that was the idea that you just, you know, you observe them three days and you just forgot about them, you just however you like. But they certainly did usher in a certain kinds of, of changes. So um, the outlawing, for example, about things about using a lot of gold thread, uh, gold for embroidery, and gold would always look particularly good against a dark ground. So then you've got to move towards paler colours. Um, and certainly, um, it's a very important one, it's a very important sort of um, technique that's developed in the Edo period. It's known as Yuzen, which is named after the, the artist who was supposedly invented it. And it, was, it used a rice paste that you um, you squeezed out of a tube, it's a bit like icing a cake, and you drew effectively with a sort of ribbon of the starch paste across the, the surface of the cloth, and then you wash the dyes on in between. So effectively, you could just draw anything you liked on a kimono. But essentially, Yuzen was cheaper than using embroidery. Um, and certainly, um, instead of the shibori, the minute tie-dyeing, people would use stencils to imitate the tie-dyeing. So there are ways that people sort of get around the sumptuary laws by using sort of slightly cheaper versions that would create the same effect on their garments. But there's also sort of other things that people um, spurted it. So the, the there was, though there was a rule about your kimono, there was no rule about your undergarments or your lining. So there was quite a lot of, sort of developments of interesting lining. Men particularly, not only the sumptuary laws, but clothing conventions in Japan at the time would, dictated that men would wear quite, um, as I said, quite plain kind of garments, just sort of, you know, very nice, subtly woven or something. So they used to wear their jackets, haori jackets, like kimono-style jackets, which often have quite a flamboyant, quite bright lining, which they would never be seen while being worn. So only the wearer and perhaps a few of his friends would know. But somehow it was that kind of idea of the sort of hidden pattern or hidden luxury. But the interesting thing about is, is particularly about the colour red. The red colour was seen was very, very fashionable. It was associated with sort of sensuality and, and glamour and, and youth. And it was kind of driven underground. And it became much more fashionable to have your uh, um, the red as an undergarment or, or as a lining because then it would only be glimpsed. It would be glimpsed at the at the neck or at the hem as a woman walked along or at her sleeve length. And that was seen as far more alluring uh, and far more more sexy, if you like, than having this sort of overt display of this sort of cut of the colour red. And this kind of aesthetic was known as icky, which is sometimes translated as sort of sophisticated chic. And it was anybody who had any taste would turn to these kind of subtle details. So it really kind of shows the creativity of, of, of sort of a fashion conscious world, that they would sort of 
rather than just capitulate to the rules, that they would subvert them in, in rather interesting and in rather ingenious ways. Yeah, and I have to say, I actually worked with a private collection a couple of years ago, and they probably had 500 Hayori. <laughs> and they are, I have to say, being able to look in, at, at these Hayori that by any other account are just a, kind of like a black jacket. You open up the inside, and there's entire paintings on the interior of these garments. It's absolutely incredible, and you never would have known. Were these from the sort of 1920s and 30s, though? These are the ones that tend to survive. Were the Howard you're looking at? Were they Edo period ones or were they? Some of them, I would say they did. They, I think the oldest we had was probably early 1800s. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She yeah. had quite the collection. Um, and so obviously there is a progression into the, into the 20th century. But I just, this idea that you would have this entire piece of art in a garment that maybe yourself and your wife would have seen. It's just, it's an incredible concept and quite beautiful. And obviously, that you're lucky to have seen things because they don't often men's garments because they're not so lavish on the outside, tend not to survive quite so much. So it's it's great when you are able to see these things. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned it a little bit, um, but fashion is nothing without the skilled artisans who've made its production possible throughout history and all over the world. It's especially impressive in the pre-industrialized era when so much of this was just done painstakingly by hand. (laughs) I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about the techniques, but first, can you tell us about the artists and artisans who participated in the making of kimono? I don't think there were necessarily renowned fashion designers per se, but I believe there were quite a few famous artists. Mm. Well, we don't, sadly, as you're right, that we, the names of the people who produce these garments are not known to us today. Certainly in terms of producing the pattern, the original sort of concept of the garments, there are some instances where famous artists uh, designed or literally painted onto the cloth uh, of kimono. So we have one example um, in the exhibition by Matsumara Goshen, who was a sort of um, literati artist. So he painted sort of in the style of, of sort of Chinese monochrome landscape painters. But um, he did create a garment which we've been able to borrow from Japan. And certainly for some of the kimono books, the pattern books, they some of them are by known artists. We have um, one on the show by Sukunobu, who's quite well known for his paintings and his, his printmaking, but also for his kimono designs. And others of the pattern books have the names of the authors of the book, the designers of the book. They're not names we know today. We haven't been able to find out much biographical information about them, but it's quite possible they were relatively well-known at, at, at the time. But certainly the artisans who produced the garments, a bit perhaps like today, we don't necessarily know their names or remember their names, but certainly they were very skilled. I mean, the, the garments we uh, are made Kyoto, although you tend to think of Edo, the, the big new bustling capital, as the, the place of, of consuming of these garments. I mean, obviously, anywhere in lots of places around Japan, you know, which uh, the elite would, would acquire kimono, but they actually tend to be made in uh, Kyoto. So there were a concentration of, of skilled labor there for the people who were the weavers, as I mentioned, and the dyers and the embroiderers. So and people would sort of be sometimes quite secretive about their, their methods. So particular dye houses, the associated particular dye houses that might create a wonderful uh, a new shade, they wouldn't allow that recipe to go out of the workshop you know, as it became very popular. And it was quite remarkable the number, the, the range of colours and shades that be, could be create, created out of a fairly limited uh, number of plants that would create the colours. <laughs> so the, um, the vegetable dyes on the whole, occasionally mineral pig, pigments. So they would, you know, 
combine these different dyes to create particular kinds of shades. So you're very skilled. A lot of experimentation went on really to know, you know, how best to dye, how long you need to use the dye stuff for, what what's mordants you might use, the mordants are used to fix the dye. These were incredibly skilled. And of course there's also the 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 broiders who would the, the threads would be dyed with these wonderful colours as well. And very, very skillful embroidery with tiny needles. And even the other kinds of artisans we forget, the people who made the threads, so, um the gold thread, for example, which is a thread that's made of a silk core wrapped in paper, wrapped in gold. You know, the people there were some artisans whose whose pure skill was to create that thread. And then people who who were, the, who were the stencil cutters, and then the people who made the tools from which the stencils were cut. So this is a, an enormous sort of network of artisans. You know, fashion was really big business, and it did support this in, in, entire network of people who contributed to it. Yeah, and I think you write actually in the catalog that the Edo period is when you've mentioned a couple of these different decorative techniques that it really reached their peak of sophistication during this period because of all of this output and all of this work that went into supporting this fashion system and producing all of these garments. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the shibori tie-dye technique specifically? Yeah, so shibori is is, is a method by which you you either bind or clamp or, or, or somehow sort of conceal, if you like, parts of the cloth before you dye it. So tie-dyeing is, is usually how it's translated into English, although tie-dye is, is a bit more of a limited kind of um, technique, we think of it in the West. So if you had, a, for example, a big area of cloth that you didn't want to dye, you would stitch around that area and gather it together. And then you might bind up that bit that's being gathered. But there's a bit we tend to think of as shibori very particularly, is what's known as kanako shibori, so fawn spot shibori fawn as in a, a deer so this tiny tiny sort of dappled and they're really remarkable garments because it you see these garments and they just look like they've got tiny spots on them but each of these little spots represents where the cloth the silk cloth has been very very carefully bound up with silk thread usually leaving a little tiny bit at the top that's unsheathed if you like or unwrapped and then it's all dipped in the dye bar so you can you can use dyes in, in, in different ways. You can either paint them on, like with the Yuzen technique, brush them on, or you can do immersion dyeing. So you put the whole cloth into a vat of the colour. And that's often what you do with the red colour, for example. And so then you have to, once you've dyed it and allowed it to dry, you have to very, very carefully snip those little bindings of silk off to create the pattern. So it was a really quite labor-intensive, quite difficult uh, technique. So again, that was very expensive, very expensive. And to have a whole garment patterned with shibori was incredibly expensive. Yeah, and like you said, you cannot emphasize enough how tiny those little bound periods are because even just looking at it, you don't notice until you look up close and it's like, wow, that entire pattern is created by Shibori. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they, it is, it is quite remarkable. I can't imagine what happens to people's eyesight doing this, you know, these sort of terribly tiny sort of skilled, uh, skilled work. But, you know, I think, you know, with this sort of demand for, for, for the latest stars, people wanted the best. So, you know, you know, you'd get that sort of sense that workshops were really pushing themselves, you know, to, to have the, you know, they were the best workshop. They had created the latest, you know, they were known for their, their best styles. They were known for the best techniques. You know, you can imagine that it sort of pushed people on really to 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 experiment with, with new techniques and, and really create you know, the best kind of work they could, because obviously that would be most profitable for the, for the workshop. 
Yeah. And to just be able to go back and spend one day there (laughs) during any of these periods and have seen how colorful and beautiful this bustling, you know, city would have been. It's just incredible to imagine. Yeah. And then, of course, every kimono you see, really, they're all individual garments. I mean, later on in in the 20th century, of course, you know, you get things that are made sort of more, not necessarily mass produced, but they're made with stencils. So you could, you can produce them the same pattern over and over again, but these kind of really expensive hookature kind of garments, and each one is completely individual, even though they may have been inspired originally by a pattern, they don't ever really see the same one twice. The, the range of styles and, and patterns, it, it, you know, it's extraordinary. Absolutely incredible. So today we've discussed Kimono in Japan, which is just one of the exhibition's three sections. You're going to join us again next week to discuss the other two. So as you've revealed today, the Edo period was an era ripe with artistic inspiration and expression. I mean, perhaps unrivaled in the country's history and undeniably stimulated by the pursuit of fashion. So before we go today, I'm hoping you will share some insight into maybe how you selected garments to feature in the section of the exhibition and perhaps share with us a few of your favorite pieces, although I know that's like asking you to pick between probably your two children, but anyways. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Well, I was saying a minute ago about how amazing they are because they're so varied. To choose to make a selection was really difficult. Of course, we started off with a much greater wish list than we actually ended up with at the end. So I suppose we, we, you know, we were thinking about particular themes and what, what story each garment was, was, was telling. And I suppose um, one of the real pleasures really was to go and spend uh, quite a bit of time in Japan with, with Japanese uh, collections. Um, in Western collections like the V&A and, and most in the world, you know, you don't get many early Edo period kimono. They tend to be mostly sort of late 18th, 19th century garments. So you need to go to Japan for anything earlier. So it was a real pleasure to be able to see those garments and, and to talk with curators there. And I learned an awful lot from them. So I think one of my favorite um, collections is the Joshibi collection, which is not particularly well known, perhaps, because it's just in it's part of an art college, which is on sort of just outside Tokyo. So it's not not a sort of well-known place, but they have an amazing collection. And I think whenever I did a sort of um, presentation about the exhibition, everybody's favorite kimono was always the same one, which is actually the first one you see as you go into the exhibition, which is just, it's from about 1800s. It's not that old, but it's, it's very quite, quite modern. It's got this great sweeping stream on it in red, shibori. And then beside it, these very, very beautifully and elegantly embroidered irises. So it's just, it's just something, it's just, it, it sort of sums up that kind of way of using the whole surface of the garment to create this very sort of dramatic kind of design um, which looks beautiful both from a distance and very, very close up when you examine it. So that was very beautiful. And another thing from the Josh Hubie collection, which I was very, very grateful for them to lending to us because uh, it's quite fragile, which is actually a man's garment. So one of the challenges was to find the men because, as I mentioned, it's the women's garments, which are the most, usually the most glamorous and, and most um, beautifully decorated, most colourful. And they're the ones that tend to be collect, survived and collected and so on. So, Finding some men was tricky. Um, we found prints of men and so on, but finding uh, actual garments was quite unusual. Um, but Joshiba had this wonderful one, which is undoubtedly uh, worn by a man, and it has embroidered characters, so embroidered words across 
the top, where the mon would normally be, there are paired uh, characters. And quite often you get um, characters used on, on women's kimono, which is usually a poem or something like that. But these just read quite simply, um, red hawk, yellow hawk, purple hawk, young hawk and dancing hawk. And at the bottom of the garment, there's a, a design of hawks sort of flying around. So you don't really think that this is anything particularly unusual. It's, you know, it seems quite straightforward. But in Japan, in the Edo period, the word hawk was uh, associated with night hawk, which was a euphemism for prostitute. And if you change the syllable, a phonetic emphasis of the words for the hawks, you'd get a completely different conversation effectively which is between two men talking about going to visit a prostitute and uh, how much you know, did they buy it did they do it you know, did you hear about it so it's quite so it's quite shocking when you do this but it's also quite funny and it really kind of reveals that kind of um sort of stylish wit of, of, of sort of merchant class taste in the Edo period. So this was definitely a man who was a sort of doyen of what we call the floating world, you know, this world of sort of glamour and eroticism and um, sensuality that you see um, very much in the Japanese prints of the time. So it was really lovely to, to get that one. And then other things were a bit of a surprise. So we visited um, one particularly uh, wonderful sort of private collector in Kyoto, uh, Kojiro Yoshida. And he also has very unusual things with him. And he produces the kimono that has skeletons on it. And it was, it was just quite a simple produced pattern. It was just stencil produced. But it was like very strange to have a skeleton on the kimono. We couldn't decide whether it would be worn by a man or a woman. And we had this wonderful conversation with him about, you know, he would say, oh, it's some, some sort of disreputable person, you know, a gangster style person <laughs> who would wear skeletons. You know. um, but then when I got back to the VNL, I was looking through our print collection that we had, a wonderful print collection. I came across um, a print of an actor called Bando Shuka, who was one of these actors who specialised in female roles. And he uh, uh, played one particular role where he was a notorious female thief and he wore a kimono with uh, skeletons on. So, um, though we don't know for sure that this garment was inspired by that print, I mean, he wasn't the only person to wear skeletons and it's not the only garment with skeletons on, in fact, I've discovered, but you just sort of think that that kind of idea of sort of kabuki actors inspiring fashion, you know, so it's really wonderful to put them um, on display together. Um, in the exhibition and it's interesting that though as I say the techniques on this skull it's just, it's just black with white skeletons especially so it's not a particularly it's not nearly as lavish or as gorgeous as quite a lot of the other garments around but people love it you know visitors to the exhibition Absolutely. really love it by popular, yeah. like popular <laughs> postcards apparently uh, so um, it's really nice and he was very pleased when he he came to see him. He, he'd get, he, you know, he'd lent this garment to us but he was so happy with how it looked he's actually gifted it to us so that's very kind of it so. I mean, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it's it's graphically so captivating and stunning. It definitely is one of my favorite pieces as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anna, thank you so much for being here today. It has been such a treat. Um, thank you for coming to share your incredible work and research with us. And you'll be back joining us next week for part two. Um, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. April, as you know, as soon as I heard this exhibition was on its way to the V&A, I immediately pre-ordered the catalog. And let me assure you, dress listeners, you are going to want to get your hands on it too. Yes, because it has a plethora of wonderful essays from different scholars and experts in the field and features over 250 garments. We will, of course, be posting some of these images on our Instagram feed to accompany this week's episode. But there's also just so, so, so much more in the catalog. 
Yeah. And if you cannot get a copy of the catalog, we will, of course, provide a link in our show notes to the exhibition's website, which has many wonderful features, including a selection of highlighted objects from the exhibition and an inside look at the exhibition itself. And I have to say, as a huge fan of Japanese fashion, I truly cannot say enough wonderful things about this exhibition and the scholarship it presents in regards to the Japanese fashion system. That, I think, does it for us today, dress listeners. Please tune in next week for part two of our interview with curator Anna Jackson, where we discuss the global influence of the kimono into the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. Until then, may you consider the kimono's legacy next time you get dressed. And of course, remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Now, where we discuss what is happening in the world of fashion history today. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. You can also follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.